Do you have the wits, the intelligence, the guile, and the sense of humor to escape Union City alive? Well, let's find out with Beneath a Steel Sky, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 47 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back once again to talk about a great game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP era. Uh, I know (laughs) it doesn't seem like it's been that long. It's been the normal amount of time since uh, the previous show came out, but I feel like I haven't done this forever, I guess, because the last show on uh, Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights wasn't really a complete show because, you know, I'd, I'd been away, as I said, in the last show for work and for trips and skiing and all all that stuff. So uh, I'm back now in my seat. Everything's as it should be. I had the proper amount of time to do preparation and the research that it takes to to put out a show. So I'm raring to go. Winter is almost over, except for the big dumping of snow we got yesterday, which was actually pretty hilarious, I guess. So it's Thursday night right now. And... Uh, Yesterday, we had really big snowstorm, and on Tuesday, my wife and I were actually out uh, running in plus 10 degree weather and in, in shorts and t-shirts and whatever when you're running. Don't worry. It's, it's Canada. Above zero, it's shorts weather, but no, it was uh, it was really quite pleasant. All this, Most of the snow was melting, and then we got a big dumping, as I know a lot of the East Coast did. But uh, weather aside, spring is on the way, and... Um, you know, we're going to have some fun things lined up to do in the spring, you know, outdoor activity wise. But uh, all that aside, we're here to talk gaming. Let's get to the news. So I guess the big news of, of the past two weeks is that um, the new Thief game came out. I've been casually talking about it over the past little while on the show, you know, when I first heard about it and, you know, heard that it was out in beta and all this stuff on Steam and blah, blah, blah. So it finally did release to production in uh, Gold Master, all that noise, back on December 27th. Uh, thus far, I have not had the chance to play the game myself, but I'm I'm hearing and I'm reading, unfortunately, very mixed reviews. Some people like it. Some people find it dull. Uh, a lot of thief, uh, quote unquote, purists, as they, you, you may call them, uh, tend not to love it, but I'm going to hold off judgment until I can play it myself, uh, most likely on a Steam sale. I know my friend Chris kind of put it pretty succinctly when he said, it's just an okay game. You know, it's not all that great. It's not all that bad. It's just kind of mediocre, which, uh, which really is very, very sad because I know at least the first two Thief games were, were seminal. I talked about them in that show and you know, when I do get around to playing it, maybe I'll do a mini review if, if I do find it unfairly uh, maligned, then, uh, you know, maybe I'll do a whole show on it. Maybe I'll do a whole show on it anyways. It kind of fits in my uh, modern game uh, style shows. So uh, Thief, available on Steam, costs the amount of a normal game. I think it's 50 bucks, something like that. So uh, if you're a big fan or you want to give it a whirl, check it out on Steam. Next, in Jane Jensen news, uh, the first of her Kickstarter, her promised Kickstarter games called Mobius Empire Rising, now has an official release date. 
The Windows version of the game is coming out in just about a month on April 15th, 2014, with the Linux, iOS, and Android ports coming out later in the year. Uh, This is the first project Jane Jensen has fully overseen since Gabriel Knight 3 back in 1999, and I, for one, am excited for it. I'm definitely going to give it a give it a playthrough as soon as uh, I possibly can. I don't think I may have backed this one. Honestly, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and check my Kickstarter history. I don't feel like I've been getting uh, backer updates, so I will assume I didn't, and I'm going to have to buy it just like uh, normal folk. Next, some classic text adventure announcements. So to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure game, the BBC, that's the British Broadcasting Corporation, has released an online playable remake of that game. You can go check it out. I have a CNET article here, which uh, links directly to the BBC uh, site where it is hosted. Uh, it looks like they do this every uh, every 10 years now. In the f- uh, they did the same thing or a similar thing for the 20th anniversary. That one's still available, but I guess they've kind of uh, moderned up the UI a little bit more to make it uh, look up to date on uh, today's fancy, rich web HTML5 controls and all, all that noise. So go check it out if you're a fan of that. Uh, I don't think I ever played through it myself. I think it's slightly before my time. And text adventures were kind of slightly before my time, but I, I'm i probably going to go give it a whirl because, hey, I'm a big fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Finally, some pretty big uh, Peter Molyneux slash 22 hands news. So you may recall his uh, his God game Kickstarter uh, for Goddess or Godess or whatever you want to call it. Well, the project has been silent for the past few months, despite the fact that it's out for early access on Steam. And it seems that during this time, uh, the 22 Cans team have been heavily retooling the game's engine, uh, the gameplay, game mechanics, a whole bunch of stuff based on some pretty scathing feedback from Steam Early Access players. So Goddess 2.0 features a ton of changes and hopefully pleases players a bit more than the original version. Uh, There's a video that uh, Molyneux and one of his developers, designers, uh, put out, you know, kind of semi-actually apologizing for the state of the game up to that point and how, uh, you know, they were unhappy with uh, the feedback they were getting from players saying that the game was a click fest and it wasn't all that fun or whatever. So they, they've put in a bunch of new systems and, uh, and cool stuff to uh, hopefully make the game more fun. If you've played Gotus the original and Gotus 2.0, uh, feel free to drop me a line. Let me know. Uh, I haven't gotten my hands on it. So I'd love to know what the, uh, what the differences are. Okay, before we get to the main topic, uh, we got some emails, and this is this is a pretty heavy email show, so uh, we're going to get some out of the way right now, and then roll on to some others in uh, kind of closer to the end. So first, we have an email from my buddy BJ. He writes, Joe, Beneath a Steel Sky is on my list of shame as well. I've got no excuse for not having played it, and to make matters that much worse, I tend to get really lost with no idea where to go in those sorts of games. The first Monkey Island is still on my list of shame, so that's something I'll have to remedy sooner rather than later. See you again in the upper memory block, BJ. 
Well, BJ, yeah. So as I, I guess I said it at the end of last show, or maybe I said it in my uh, YouTube playthroughs or something, but uh, Beneath the Steel Sky that we're going to cover in just a little bit is one of those games that I, I hadn't got around to playing until until my playthrough for this show. So, you know, no, no need to feel ashamed, BJ. That's just how these things are. We couldn't get our hands on everything. And, you know, maybe it was just a question of the game passing you by, or you didn't have the money at the time. It was a lot harder to get your hands on games you know, back in the day, once they weren't in stores, you know, you'd have to go and seek it out kind of at a, you know, kind of lower end store, let's say, when they were off the uh, the AAA shelves, or you'd have to go and find like uh, some packs or some of those like multi-pack discs or demos or all kinds of stuff like that. So, hey, that's why this show is around, to expose people to games they have not yet played. And next, an email from Elima. She writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Really glad you decided to run that episode on the Star Trek games. I'd always meant to go and download it, but never got around to it. I remember playing Star Trek 25th Anniversary with my sister when I was younger. First attempts to play the game were not pretty. We'd forego reading the map and rush into danger in some random sector. The end result was the Enterprise getting blown into smithereens. We did eventually reach the first mission and solve the mystery of Pollux 4. But beyond that, memories are fuzzy. I think we got stuck up, gave up, sadly enough. Uh, never played Judgment Rights, however, so I guess I'll have to give it a try. I never got around to playing Beneath the Steel Sky, even though I got it for free on GOG, and my best friend has been telling me for years that it's a classic, so I'm definitely eager to hear what you have to say about it. Thanks for all the awesome work you put into the podcast. Keep it up, Emily, aka Elima. Well, thanks, Elima, and you know, I am glad. I've kind of been keeping that... Uh, that Star Trek show in my back pocket and uh, just wondering when I'd uh, I'd have the opportunity to kind of pull it out and uh, throw it into the uh, into circulation. And, you know, I'm glad I did. Uh, I know it, it wasn't a, a standard show. I may not have gotten quite as technical. I focused a bit more on, on the storylines and the kind of the gameplay stuff and not so much the development. But um, but yeah, I think it was it, it was really great. I really, really, really loved those games being that I'm a huge and st- I was and still am a huge Star Trek fan, I remember back in the day, that was really, frankly, aside from, you know, Begin, that really old Star Trek simulator, that was really all you had for Trek gaming at the time. And, uh, you know, the way they, they set it up, so you're basically playing through episodes, was was really, really quite cool, really put you into the thick of things. And, uh, you know, if you haven't played Judgment Rights, it's better than 25th Anniversary, I found, in, in every way. It took all the stuff that was good about 25th anniversary and uh, just made it better. So give it a whirl if you can. Highly, highly recommended. So thanks to you guys for those emails. We'll get on to a few more emails a little bit later. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, on to the main event. This time around, we're discussing a game that has long been at the top of my list of shame, Beneath a Steel Sky. This game was developed by Revolution Software and published by Virgin Interactive in the year 1994. So, no surprise here, Beneath a Steel Sky is an adventure game. Since this is UMB cast and we talk about games from the 90s, we love adventure games. Whatever you may think of this game, from a design perspective, it is a very traditional style graphic adventure. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you've heard me describe this genre ad nauseum. However, for the sake of consistency and for the sake of any new listeners, hey guys, welcome to the show, uh, I'm going to give this genre 
a very quick 10,000 foot rundown. So an adventure game is pretty much the video game equivalent of playing through a movie. You take control of one or more protagonists who are given a quest early on in the game. Now this quest can range anywhere from the very mundane and personal up to world-spanning, universe-saving, empire-destroying epicness. Characters are required to explore and interact with the world and other characters around them in an effort to complete their quest. Challenges are usually presented in the form of puzzles. Adventure games puzzles come in any and all shapes and sizes. They can consist of locating certain items for NPCs, combining various items to get past some kind of barrier, puzzles involving logic, riddles, math, science, pretty much anything you can think of has been an adventure game puzzle. In fact, last week in the uh, in the 25th anniversary show, or maybe it was in Judgment Rights, there was, uh, there was a puzzle that involved, you know, mixing chemicals together to form different chemical compounds. And I believe the chemistry was actually a little bit... Uh, a little bit accurate in there. So character progression is usually a function of progression through the story as opposed to any sort of RPG style leveling mechanism, though there are exceptions to this rule. As with most games, uh, adventures usually end in some kind of final confrontation or set piece which resolves the story. Some adventures have multiple endings which are dependent on the player's decisions at certain critical points in the game, and some just have kind of a standard single ending. So that's adventure gaming in a nutshell. Let's talk specifics. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, story time. So as we begin paging through the fairly succinct game manual, uh, we get a bit of an idea of the world we're about to enter. Interestingly, none of the background given in the game manual is from the point of view of our main character. So it turns out we're living in the future, and the future is not very bright. It appears that the Earth has been significantly damaged by some combination of pollution or nuclear fallout or killing whales or something like that. We eventually glean that we are most likely in Australia. However, this future Australia has been reorganized into a group of city-states forming around major cities. After the conflicts which got the world to this point, two major political schools of thought emerged. We have the unions, which are states which ascribe to quote-unquote neo-democratic principles. These principles basically involve the total revocation of any type of labor representation and any other form of social benefit. The union states are basically the opposite of present-day unions, which in theory exist to protect the individual rights of powerless workers from the oppression of rich, faceless, soulless corporations. So, in effect, the union states are ultra-capitalist. Profit is king. People are simply inputs to be managed to maximize profits. The gap between rich and poor is very, very large. On the other side of the coin, we have the corporations. Again, in a reversal of present-day definitions, corporations are basically the opposite of union states. They're socially active, take care of their people, the government has kind of a, a good amount of control over things and, uh, and stuff like that. So we are in Union City, which is the second largest of the city-states. Union City is in conflict with the Hobart Corporation. Both of these states are racing to achieve dominance in the market by making more money and sabotaging each other. So this is the backdrop in which we find ourselves at the start of the game. 
Reading on in the manual, we find the bio of one Commander Reich, a special operative of Union City Security Force. We also find orders for Commander Reich to locate one Robert Overman, an infant who was taken from Union City by his mother. They escaped via helicopter, which was sabotaged before takeoff. The helicopter crashed in a desolate area known as the Gap, which I believe is logically equivalent to the Outback in Australia, uh, but young Robert's body was never recovered from the crash site. It was never found, and he wasn't found dead or alive. Reich's orders are, years later, to once again proceed to the now very old crash site and search for clues to Overman's whereabouts. So this is where our view inside Union City's administration ends, and the game's introduction which comes at us from a completely different point of view, begins. The old man was trying to tell the future, looking for pictures in the campfire. Oh, I see evil, evil born deep beneath the city. Far from the light of day, I see it growing safe beneath a sky of steel, scheming in the dark, gathering strength. And now, oh... Now the evil spreads. It sends deadly feelers over the land above, across the gap, reaching towards this very place. I'd seen him do it a hundred times, but I humored him. After all, he'd been like a father to me. And what does this evil want here? Oh, my son, I fear. I fear the evil wants you. That was when Joey piped up. Sensors detect incoming audio source. The evil, the evil is nearly here. It sounded more like a copter than a demon. But the next thing, all hell let loose anyway. Run, Foster, run! Hide from the evil! Foster! Help! Better make my next body move faster, Foster! He was only a robot. Oh, I love the little guy. Then, as suddenly as it started, the shooting stopped. There was a moment's silence as the copter cut its rotors. Then... Whoever is in charge here, come forward. Now! Only a fool would have argued with that firepower. I am the leader of these people. We are peaceful. Bring him here. At once, Commander Reich. We're looking for someone. Someone who doesn't belong here. Who wasn't born in this garbage dump who came from the city as a child. We want to take him home again. My mind racing. I remembered where I'd seen that symbol before. It was the day the tribe found me. The day of the crash. The day my mother died. You all right, city boy? Got a name, son? R Robert. Ah, welcome to the Gap, Robert. As he patched me up, the old man had gently explained that there was no way back into the city, and I already knew there was nothing he could do for Mother. His tribe was poor, but they treated me like one of their own. I learned how to survive in the wasteland they called the Gap, and scavenging from the city dumps. As the years passed, I forgot my life in the city, discovered new talents. Ha! I'm your friend. Call me Joey. And got a second name. This is what we'll call you, now that you've come of age, son. We found you, fostered you, so that makes you Robert Foster. Wasted enough time. Give us the runaway, or we'll shoot everyone. Starting with you, Grandad. 
The old man had been right for once. It was me they wanted. No, my son. Don't let the evil take you. Run! DNA scan confirms it's him, sir. Evil had come to the gap, just as he said. Take him. But had the old man seen why it wanted me, or what it would do next? It was too late to ask him now. Leaving destruction zone, Commander Reich. Good. Detonate. Much too late. Why, you murdering? Keep him quiet. All I could do was wait, just like on a hunt. Just like the old man taught me. Wait and be ready. It was dawn when we reached the city. Land in the central security compound. A dawn my tribe would never see. They were no more than a note in Reich's book now. Yes, sir. Locking on automatic landing beacon. But what was I? Why did... Sir, the guidance system. It's gone crazy. We're going to hit. Maybe I'd get some answers now. If I survived another copter crash. So we are playing Robert Foster. Robert is now a fugitive from Union City Justice. His mission is clear. He's not here to save the world. He's not here to topple the oppressive regime. He just needs to get the hell out of Union City with his skin intact. Will he accomplish some other things on the way? Maybe so. Okay, time to chat gameplay. So Robert is on the run from the cops. While overall Beneath a Steel Sky's gameplay is somewhat standard, uh, this isn't a Sierra SCI or LucasArts scum adventure game. The game is built on Revolution's virtual theater engine, and we'll get into technical details for that engine later on, but for the moment, let's talk about how the gameplay of Beneath a Steel Sky differs from other games we've discussed. The biggest difference that's readily noticeable is that there are no action icons in Beneath a Steel Sky. Your cursor is simply an arrow. Clicking anywhere on the screen with any mouse button will move Robert to that location. If the mouse moves across a hot spot, it turns into a cross with a one or two word description of the actionable element floating next to the cursor. Clicking the left button will cause Robert to describe the object. Clicking the right button will trigger a default action on the object if one exists. Right-click a person, Robert will speak to them. Right-click a door, Robert will try to open it. The other major difference is that in this game, you're not always the lone hero. As you heard in the intro, Robert grabbed the circuit board belonging to his little robot pal, Joey. As we find out, in the Beneath a Steel Sky universe, engineers have devised an ingenious technology that we have yet to envision in our own day and age, a universal hardware connector. What this means to us is that Joey's circuit board can be plugged into any robot shell in the game, co-opting that robot's programming and allowing Joey to perform a wide variety of helpful actions. Of course, as we said, right off the bat, we're on the run. Robert runs into a nearby recycling center and hides out on an upper-level catwalk. After somewhat cleverly evading a security officer, we're free to walk around. We soon come across a junk pile where we see an abandoned robot shell. Well, this is a great opportunity to activate Joey, so Robert pops Joey's board into what turns out to be the future version of a Roomba. Is this the best shell you could find? You've turned me into a vacuum cleaner. So obviously Joey is none too pleased, but 
This line, this little clip here, also gives you a great idea of his character. He's a snarky little guy. Commander Reich soon catches up with us as uh, we're attempting to escape the recycling center, and uh, it seems that all is lost. That is, until the city's computer system, which we soon find out is named Link, L-I-N-C, takes some drastic steps to defend Robert. This action both allows Robert to escape Commander Reich and the city's security forces for the time being, and also provides him with an access card, which allows him some limited access to Union City's upper levels. Now, I found this a bit odd, and maybe it's because of other sci-fi that I've been exposed to. Uh, Union City strikes me as a bit backwards. Take Star Wars, for example. On the capital planet of Coruscant, huge skyscrapers dominate the planet. In fact, the entire world is really just one big city. The planet's surface levels have been built on top of over hundreds of thousands of years and are now home to subterranean species, wild, dangerous animals, gangs, and are generally fraught with untold horrors and dangers. The rich and affluent live in secure and beautiful towers amongst the clouds. Heck, even the Jetsons live in the sky. This was my expectation for Union City as well. However, the opposite is true here. In Union City... The upper levels contain factories, power plants, and uh, lower social order housing. As you approach ground level, though, things get much nicer. The rich live right on the ground, so our goal is to exit Union City. To do this, we have to get to ground level. Robert eventually does so, with some side trips into Link's virtual reality space, also known as Link Space. Once he makes it to ground level, he goes even farther into the city's abandoned subway tunnels and eventually ends up coming face-to-face with Link itself and also his own birthright. I'm obviously leaving out quite a bit. In fact, I'm leaving out almost everything. This is a story you shouldn't have spoiled for you. It's a good one with a great balance of seriousness and humor from the senseless annihilation of your tribe right at the start, to a quack of a plastic surgeon, to the untimely death of one of your few allies, to catapulting a dog into a pond, this game keeps you guessing all the way through. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for tech focus. So Beneath a Steel Sky was a fairly standard game from a requirement standpoint for the year 1994. It required at least a 386SX 33MHz, 2 megs of RAM, and 10 megs of hard drive space. The executable needed a grand total of 550K of conventional memory available. Unless you really went out of your way to load every driver under the sun, this wasn't really a huge deal to get running. It also required a minimum of DOS 5.0. DOS 5 seems like it was kind of the big the big turning point where is either you required DOS 3.3 or you required DOS 5. There wasn't really much in the middle there. So graphically, 
By 1994, we had graduated to Super VGA. That still gave us a 256 color palette, but now we were seeing those colors at double the resolution of standard VGA. No more 320 by 200 for us. We're rolling with the big boys at 640 by 480. All jokes aside though, the doubled resolution allowed for much more graphic fidelity, both in the comic style intro and in the game itself. Characters, animations, and backgrounds could all be much bigger and much more detailed. You know, while these days in our world of 1920 by 1080 HD and beyond, uh, a jump from 320 by 200 to 640 by 480 seems quaint, but it was really a big deal at the time. In fact, I think there were certain games where I had that option and I had to run in VGA resolution because my machine just wasn't powerful enough to push 640 by 480. So, how did they display these great graphics? Well, like many other adventure games that we've discussed, Beneath the Steel Sky wasn't coded from scratch. It ran on version 2.0 of Res Revolution's virtual theater game engine. We'll get into the development of the engine and the dev story, but for the moment, let's focus on some interesting features. So when virtual theater first came out in 1992, it was basically on par with both LucasArts' Scum and Sierra's new SCI engine. In fact, in some ways, it was even smarter. In other engines, non-player characters generally waited in one spot for the player to approach and interact with them. Virtual theater allowed NPCs to wander the world in either set or somewhat random patterns, and uh, could also have the NPCs independently interact with the environment in a somewhat less scripted manner than their competitor engines. They'd go around and kind of do real life things. They'd go to their house, they'd go to their job, they'd go eat food, they'd go drink water, they'd talk to other characters, stuff like that. This level of AI was unparalleled in an adventure game engine at the time. In addition, all objects in the game occupied physical space. Now what this means is that if another character is standing in your way, you have to wait for them to move or convince them to get out of your way before you can get past them. It's a small thing, but it's very, very noticeable. Finally, the engine was multi-platform, running on both the PC and the Amiga, and I believe a few other uh, a few other platforms. In fact, the devs at Revolution had such a good reputation for writing fast and efficient Amiga code, Sierra contracted them out to port King's Quest VI over to that platform. And of course, you can't talk about Beneath the Steel Sky without talking about its music. The game's incredible soundtrack was composed by David Lowe, who also occasionally went by the nickname Uncle Art. Uh, he was a well-known video game composer who worked on quite a few titles for the Atari ST, Amiga, and PC, including both Star Glider games and the port of Street Fighter II. Now, what made Lowe's work quite unique is that he composed music on professional-level synthesizers and then downsample it to MIDI or the you know Amiga sound device or the PC speaker or stuff like that. Some games he worked on actually came packed with an audio cassette version of those full quality soundtracks. His music for Beneath the Steel Sky ranges from dark and ominous to light and airy, depending on where in the world you are at a given time. But despite this big range of environment, all the music flows together very, very well. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, as I've already mentioned, Beneath the Steel Sky was developed 
by a company called Revolution Software. Uh, Revolution was founded by four people, but we'll begin at the beginning with one Charles Cecil. So Cecil was born in the UK in 1962. His father, David, worked for the massive consumer goods company Unilever, and uh, very soon after Charles's birth, was transferred by the company to their offices in the Republic of Congo. While there, he was tasked with rebuilding Unilever's accounting systems, I guess, in, in Congo's offices, in the Congo offices. Less than two years later, while his mother was pregnant with his younger sister, the family was evacuated back to the UK amidst the coup d'etat of, and I'm going to say this wrong, Mobutu Sese Siko in 1965. So Siko would eventually rename the country from uh, the Congo to Zaire, and he would remain president of that country until 1997. So African politics aside, Charles and his family did evacuate, and they made it back to the UK, settling in York. Uh, he attended boarding school in the south of England and then went on to study mechanical engineering at Manchester University. Around 1980, during his engineering studies, he met another student named Richard Turner. I believe they were on a course that was uh, actually sponsored by Ford. Turner had started a small game company with another one of his friends, and uh, they named that company Arctic Computing. He convinced Cecil to come and work with him writing adventure games. He decided programming for Arctic would uh, would be a good way to get some extra beer money, so Cecil accepted. He said, you know, fine, I'll come work for you and get some cash on the side, all that noise. So he went on to write games with such creative names as Adventure B, Adventure C, and Adventure D. And I think the games did have more specific subtitles as well, but I think these versions are much funnier. The games were all very, very successful on the Sinclair Z81, the ZX Spectrum, and the Amstrad. So at this point, we had Cecil and we had Turner. After Charles completed his degree in 1985, he took up the position of director at Arctic. He encountered another young designer named Tony Warriner, who had a great idea for a game he was calling Obsidian. Uh, he had designed and programmed the whole game in his bedroom. Cecil convinced him to let Arctic publish the game, and uh, then after that, to have him come on board and work with the team as a developer and game designer. Sadly, very soon after, and in, uh, in fact, one year later, in 1986, Arctic folded. Cecil took Warner with him and formed Paragon Programming. That company only lasted a year. It folded when Cecil was recruited as development manager for U.S. Gold. Uh, Cecil soon became turned off with U.S. Gold's kind of larger, big company, marketing-centric approach. Uh, in U.S. Gold, he kind of said that game design was not a high priority marketing and maximizing game sales were. So instead of putting out a good game and letting it stand on its own, they'd push out crappier, mediocre games and just have a big marketing machine to uh, to push them out and make the company money. So in 1988, Cecil again moved. So we got 85, 86, 88. Uh, this time, his move was to Activision. He was tasked with managing the company's European development studio. And this is where he met Norin Carmody. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Anyways, she was at the time Activision Europe's general manager, and uh, they soon formed a relationship and started dating. However, Activision wasn't all love and game development. 
times soon got tough once again. He's kind of having a tough time here every couple of years. So times soon got tough, and uh, Charles was asked if he wouldn't mind going on a, a part-time contract. He wasn't totally let go, just asked if he could reduce to part-time hours. He said yes, with the caveat that he wanted to, on the days he wasn't working, work on starting his own game studio. Activision agreed. I guess they, they were fine with it. No big deal. And uh, so he started working two days a week for Activision and spent basically all the other days setting up his new company, armed with a 100,000 pound loan from his mother. So he got back into contact with Tony Warner, uh, who brought with him another programmer named David Sykes. Along with his new girlfriend, Noreen Carmody, and his two programmers, he went ahead and started their new company. Well, to be precise, what they actually did was they bought a defunct company called Turnvale and renamed it because apparently that was cheaper than founding a new company from scratch. After much deliberation, they named their company Revolution Software, and that happened on March 3rd of 1990. Charles held the title of managing director, but he also held the main responsibility for writing and game design. So they had a company, but what were they going to do now? Well, they knew they wanted to make adventure games. They had experience in the genre, and, you know, in 1990, adventure games were all the rage. Around this time, of course, as we've discussed already, and we all pretty much know if we played games around this time, the adventure space was dominated by two major players. This is a gross generalization of these two major players, but let's go with it. On one end, we had Sierra, who generally put out games of a more serious nature, barring Space Quest and Leisure Suit Larry. Uh, on the other end, we had LucasArts, who generally put out games that were sillier and didn't really take themselves too seriously. Revolution wanted to live in the middle of these two extremes. They wanted to create an adventure game with a serious story, but that didn't take itself too seriously. Their first game also needed to result in an engine that they could reuse going forward. Well, the result of that was 1992's Lure of the Temptress, which ran on Tony Warner's new virtual theater engine that we discussed both in the, in the uh, gameplay section and in the tech focus. So in Lure of the Temptress, you are a young peasant named Dermot. Your goal is to overthrow an evil sorceress. Development on Temptress was pretty loose. They had no real development process. They had no design document. Warner and the other programmers would basically code things up and then bring them to Cecil, who would either approve them or ask for changes to be done. Despite this, Temptress released, and it was quite successful. It was published by Virgin Interactive, as uh, many games from uh, smaller development houses in Europe were at the time. So with this success under their belts, along with some additional investment from Virgin, the Revolution team moved into much nicer offices in the city of Hull. For the company's second game, Cecil pursued an idea he had tried to do at Activision, but uh, he wasn't able to get it off the ground before that company had hard times. So Charles was a big comic fan, and specifically at the time, he was a big fan of The Watchmen, which, if you haven't read it, is an incredible graphic novel published in 1986. Well, at Activision, he got in contact with a man named Dave Gibbons, who was the artist and co-creator, along with the, uh, the infamous Alan Moore, of the Watchmen uh, novel, graphic novel. Cecil started putting out feelers to Gibbons to see if he'd be interested in potentially working on a game. 
Unfortunately, before the conversations could go anywhere, Cecil's time at Activision ended. He still maintained contact with Gibbons, though, throughout the intervening years. So now we're in, you know, 1992-ish, near the release of Lure of the Temptress. Cecil again contacted Gibbons and again asked if he'd be interested in joining his new company for a potential game project. Gibbons saw how his art and his storytelling skills could potentially fit into the games industry, so he agreed to come on board. So Gibbons was hired and uh, didn't do any work on Lure of the Temptress. It was basically already done, but he was immediately put to work on the company's yet untitled second game. Uh, He started from a rudimentary outline provided by Cecil. From there, he expanded out the story, created characters, and generally built out the rich world of the new game. Gibbons went back and forth with various creatives within Revolution, including Cecil and other designers, and uh, eventually ended up with a complete, detailed outline of a game that he was calling Underworld. The game took place in a very detailed, cyberpunk, dystopian world, inspired in part by Blade Runner. So, the main idea moving forward was to visually bridge Gibbons' comic art style into the actual gameplay graphics. Now, these days, that probably wouldn't be a huge challenge, but then, in 640x480, it certainly was. So, Gibbons would sketch backgrounds and uh, send them to the Revolution team, who would let him know if they were technically feasible or not. From there, he'd draw final pencil sketches which were then inked and scanned at 1,000 by 1,000 pixels at 16 million colors. They were then downsampled and, you know, derezzed and all that stuff to the game's required operating resolution. Gibbons also designed the game's characters. He found this especially challenging. It was very tough for him, coming from a traditional comic background, to express a sprite's personality using a face that was only about 7 or 8 pixels wide. At the end of the day, about 75% of the art that Gibbons created for the game was actually used. Of course, the purest form of his art is viewable in the comic-style intro and the packed-in comic book that came in the game's box. So by now, the Revolution team had grown from 7 people up to 11, and it was looking like their new game, which had been renamed Beneath the Steel Sky, was going to be about 6 times larger than Lure of the Temptress. The dialogue of the game was written by Dave Cummins, who had also worked on Temptress. Now, I already mentioned how Revolution was trying to place itself in between the tones of Sierra and LucasArts, and this is true. However, Charles Cecil and Dave Cummins were in constant conflict about how exactly to do that with regard to the writing of the game. Cecil felt like the game's dialogue should trend towards the more serious side of things, whereas Cummins felt it should move more into the realm of humor. This conflict gave us these somewhat serious undertones of the game's plot, game's world, and events, along with a bunch of funny incidents and witty and sarcastic exchanges between many of the characters. So it was kind of this conflict that fueled that balance, which ended up, I feel, working out pretty well. Now, for the CD-ROM version, uh, voice acting was also, of course, to be included. Initially, the whole game was recorded using actors from the Royal Shakespeare Company. However, upon hearing what had been done by these classical stage actors, uh, the Revolution team decided to spend a lot of time and a lot of money re-recording with actual voice actors as opposed to stage actors. Since this had to be done quickly, 
at times the game's speech doesn't match the subtitles displayed, and at other times, some voice lines are completely missing and are simply displayed as text only. Finally, some technical updates had to be made to the virtual theater engine running the game. Since this game was much bigger than Lure of the Temptress, uh, some of that real-world AI stuff that we keep talking about had to be scaled back. So not all the characters would simply wander around the world going about their daily lives. Some did, but they were not quite as rich in, let's say, AI as uh, they were in Lure of the Temptress. Also, from a programming perspective, uh, the engine was made much more object-oriented. In Temptress, uh, a lot of kind of common actions were coded into routines. So, for example, in Temptress, all doors would call the same door code and thus all acted the same way. In Virtual Studio 2.0, similar types of game objects could have different types of behaviors. So you could have one door that opened horizontally, one door that opened vertically, one door that was locked, one door that wasn't, that, that kind of thing. Whereas in the first game, you know, if you had one door, it worked the same as any other door. So Everything's all done. Everything's all well and good. The game's very close to development, to uh, the completion of development, and uh, it had to be shown off a little bit. So Beneath a Steel Sky was shown at quite a few trade shows in the year 1993, and according to some publications, was actually slated for a release in October of that year. Of course, as with any project, last-minute delays pushed the game to March 1994, and uh, at that time, it shipped on either a single CD-ROM or 15 three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks. Here we were kind of getting to the end of the uh, floppy disk-based game era because the numbers were starting to get a little bit ridiculous. Despite that, Beneath the Steel Sky was a rousing success. It gained critical acclaim for art, for dialogue, for story, for intuitive controls, for playability, much, much more. It was really, really popular, really, really great, and remains a cult classic to this day. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what does the future hold for Beneath a Steel Sky? Well, this is one of those stories we hear every now and again. So in 2004, this is, you know, 10 years after the original game came out, Charles Cecil stated that Beneath a Steel Sky 2 was something that Revolution was considering. In 2006, he again mentioned, mentioned his interest in working with Gibbons again on a sequel. Cecil reiterated this fact again in 2009. So now, on to September of 2012, we're getting fairly recent history here, uh, we have a Kickstarter for Broken Sword 5, which was the fifth game in Revolution's Broken Sword series, which I will probably cover one of these days as well. Now, on that Kickstarter, there was a $1 million stretch goal introduced, which would trigger development on Beneath a Steel Sky 2. Now, the $1 million stretch goal was not met, uh, but despite this... Cecil said it didn't mean that the game wouldn't happen. In fact, the success of Broken, the Broken Sword 5 campaign apparently motivated the whole team, or maybe it was just Cecil, to apparently actually begin work on Beneath the Steel Sky 2, despite the fact they didn't reach the goal that they said they'd have to. The intention was to create the game for multiple platforms, as usual, including PC, OS X, Linux, and mobile stuff, blah, blah, blah. Now, sadly... A couple weeks back, in February of 2014, 
Despite admonitions up to this point that they had been actively working on Beneath the Steel Sky 2, it was confirmed their revolution is not, in fact, not currently working on the game and that they would potentially visit the project once work on the second part of Broken Sword 5 is complete. I guess we'll see going forward if this is the case or not. It seems like over the past 10 years, we've been told the game's happening and the game's happening and the game's happening and... It doesn't happen. So not holding my breath. It would be great if Beneath the Steel Sky 2 came out, but what are you going to do? As always, uh, you guys, please keep me informed. I'll keep you informed, and uh, we'll see what there is to see regarding Beneath the Steel Sky 2. But for the moment, the original game, that's what we've got. So with that in mind, where can we get Beneath the Steel Sky today? Well, Despite the bad news about no sequel, this is probably my favorite how-do-you-get-it section ever. As Alima said in her email right at the beginning of the show, Beneath a Steel Sky is free. Yes, it is free. It is legally 100% free. You can grab it from GOG.com or off of ScumVM's website. It runs on an included version of ScumVM since ScumVM supports uh, the virtual theater engine and it works beautifully. In addition, in 2009... Revolution put out a remastered version of Beneath the Steel Sky for iOS. You can get that from the App Store for $2.99 US if you want to play it on the go. So lots of ways to get the game. None of them except for the iOS version cost money and they work great. So hey, what's there to complain about? Okay, time for some more emails before we get to the verdict. This is a pretty big email week all around, so uh, let's get to it. First, an email from Colin, and Colin writes, uh, Just wanted to give you a few thoughts for your Beneath a Steel Sky show. Ever since I first played it, this game has always stood out to me for its rather unique style. Overall, it's a very dark story of oppression and corruption, but it's also full of very silly and lighthearted moments. It also stands out with the capitalization used to emphasize certain words similar to a comic book, and there was actually some capitalization in there. When watching your research playthrough, I noticed you thought it was weird that things were fancier on the ground level of the city, but more industrial and grimy the higher you got. I actually think this makes a lot of sense. In the future this game portrays, things like plant life and clean water seem to be rather scarce, so being able to live right next to a park like Mrs. Piermont does would become a luxury only the rich could afford. Plus, all the smoke and smog pouring out of the factories would remain out of sight and mind. It's just a theory, but I think it helps explain why. I'm sure you'll probably talk about Beneath the Steel Sky 2 being Revolution's next project, but what you may not know is back in 2009, Revolution released a Beneath the Steel Sky remastered for smartphones. Among various improvements, this version also features a teaser trailer after the credits for Beneath a Steel Sky 2. I couldn't find the trailer anywhere online, but it does at least provide a taste for those anticipating the sequel. Here's to a great show and many more to follow. Well, thank you, Colin. And uh, of course, I did mention the iOS version. And yeah, that's something that I didn't mention. It's it's actually interesting with... Uh, so like many adventure games, when you talk to someone, there's different dialogue options and uh, various words, keywords, I guess you would say in uh, those dialogue options are capitalized just like they would be in a comic book or, you know, in a comic book, maybe they'd be bolded. 
but you know it does it it was one of those things that they did to kind of connect the comic style into the traditional adventure style and i think that was was really cool and was just another little uh little hint as to the thought that actually did go into uh into the development and the world building and the engine building and even ui building of this game usually a ui is kind of like the last thing that people worry about ui programming is traditionally kind of like the garbage job in a game development studio that no one wants to do they give it to new guys they give it to people that people that really really want to do it and uh you know if you're a good ui programmer in the gaming industry you'll have a job for the rest of your life because you're doing the crap that no one else wants to do so thanks colin great comments there so next we have a voicemail from Klaus. He's going to talk a bit about uh, the game's music and some uh, some cool facts about uh, where that stands today. Take it away, Klaus. Hey, Joe. Um, I just wanted to contribute to your uh, to your uh, Beneath the Steel Sky podcast this week. I wanted to tell you about some anecdotes I had while playing Beneath the Steel Sky back in the day and uh, today. I actually played it uh, very recently also. I played this game so many times. It's just that good, I think. Um, when I uh, played it the first time I got it on like a, I think it was diskettes back in the day uh, I had a hell of a time getting the music to work whenever I got the music to work the voices wouldn't play and uh, the other way around so I had to um, tinker a lot to get it working I had to make a diskette with a dust boot to get it uh, running uh, but where when I got it running I was like blown away it was an amazing adventure game I think the setting is just uh, brilliant you're in this tower block you have no idea what's going on there's this like uh, dystopian future Orwellian thing going on and uh, you don't you don't know what you're doing you don't know who you are yeah it's an amazing uh, setting and it's very very British I think it's very English the humor is and uh, it's it's a it's a cool juxtaposition to the sci-fi setting it's almost Whovian in its uh, in its execution I think um, yeah uh, let's see uh, my favorite song is the one uh, that plays when you get to ground level it's so opposite to all the other music in the game uh, because uh, the other music is kind of dark sometimes but this is just like chipper and it's like you've come to the best place in the whole city this ground level and uh, people are happy and rich and uh, everything's clean and stuff like that it's going to uh, run in the background uh, I put the three songs from the enhanced soundtrack which you can uh, get at scum VM I'll put a link in the mail to you Joe then you can put it on your show notes if you want and then there's the story you know you're this guy that grew up in the in the you know outlands and uh, then all of a sudden you come to the city and you find out that you have connection to the, to the city uh, i don't want to spoil anything but uh, at the end you're like wow i did didn't see this coming uh, i hope i whetted somebody's appetite for the game um, but it's really really cool um, yeah and a little uh, anecdote Lady Piermont, which you meet at ground level, is uh, actually in a lot of other revolution games, broken sword games uh, to be exact. I think she's in three of the five. She's not voiced by the original actor. Well, in the first broken sword game she she is, but in the others she isn't. Uh, there are a lot of stories about that, but, but maybe Joe can talk about them if he reviews Broken Sword at some point. But yeah, that's about it. I'll, I will uh, wish uh, 
Joe and uh, the listeners a good day. And uh, I really um, implore you to try this game. It's an amazing adventure game. It has its very unique style, and uh, I love it very much. Okay, bye. Well, thanks so much, Klaus, and and. You know, thanks for the the pointing me to the uh, to the enhanced soundtrack. You know, I'm kind of a, a game music nerd a little bit, and I really did enjoy uh, sampling that. And I think that's what I'm going to play kind of in my little section as well. Maybe a different track than the ones that you put in there. And um, you know, it's 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 really cool. So basically, the guy that that uh, put this stuff together, he basically took the original game tracks and put them through more modern synthesizers to basically just, he didn't really change them. He didn't redesign them or anything like that. He just kind of enhanced them to make them sound a little bit cleaner, a little bit more modern, a little bit nicer. And I think he does a really good job. Like the music's still there. It's still the same music, but it just sounds better. And also what you mentioned about the British kind of uh, style of humor, I, I do have to agree. It's not something that, that, I thought of mentioning, but when you mentioned it, it, it did jog a memory for me. And, you know, yes, it's kind of, it's very dry. It's very witty. One of the, uh, one of my favorite characters in the game is actually, uh, I can't remember his name now, but he's the supervisor at the factory and he's this kind of big guy and he's got this, uh, you know, funny, funny kind of Australian accent. And, uh, he wears a a full length fur coat. He's a big fat guy with black hair and he wears a full length fur coat because he's the supervisor and you know who I am. I am the supervisor here. And it's just hilarious. So thanks a lot, Klaus. Finally, I've got a longer message here, which I am referring to actually as my, one of my first or second actual, uh, listener provided segments. So, uh, this is segment is from trolls the space quest historian we've heard from him once before and this is a bit longer but uh, we get some very good inside info on his experiences with the game the developers and the fan community surrounding beneath a steel sky be warned there's a little bit of swearing in here but we're all adults so whatever take it away trolls hi i'm the space quest historian but i play other games as well and Boy, oh boy, where do I begin on Beneath the Steel Sky? Well, how about the fact that, aside from the Space Quest series, of course, Beneath the Steel Sky is my all-time favorite computer game ever. I'm serious. There was a time when Space Quest and the adventure game genre was so far dead and buried that you couldn't say adventure game in polite conversation without drawing some strange quizzical glances, and for that long period of time, instead of launching into a lengthy lecture about what the Space Quest series was and how each of the six installments in that series were my all-time favorite computer games, and only then, if the person I was talking to hadn't already run away screaming or died from acute onset of boredom, get into the specific mechanics of how adventure games worked and why they were so dear to me, for the most part, when asked what my favorite computer game was, I would just give up and say Beneath the Steel Sky, and then go straight into describing the cyberpunk world and the living computer and the sarcastic robotic sidekick, and everyone would just go, oh, that sounds uh, interesting. And then they'd run away screaming and die. This happened a lot to me in high school. Anyway, my story about Beneath the Steel Sky isn't so much about why I love it so damn much, but for completeness sake, I'll get that out of the way real quick. Why do I love it? Well, fuck, you combine dystopian cyberpunk with scathing social commentary with sardonic British humor and sprinkle the whole thing with something as rare as a masterfully executed blend of true cyberpunk horror and sarcastic English wit without the two ever seeming at odds with each other and uh, you've got fucking Beneath the Steel Sky on your hands. And possibly down your legs as well. I mean, for me, 
this game has it all. I could give less of a shit about some critics who say that the game is at odds with what it's supposed to be. Is it a comedy? Is it a sci-fi? Why Why is everyone being so flippant when the underlying story is meant to be taken so seriously? And uh, I've got just one word for those critics. Fooey. Here's a funny story for you. Uh, back when it looked like Revolution Software were really serious about making a sequel to Beneath the Steel Sky during their Broken Sword 5 Kickstarter campaign, going so far as to making Steel Sky uh, a stretch goal for the Broken Sword crowdfunder, I raised a phenomenal amount of hell on my Twitter account that basically amounted to how dare they use my favorite game to get us all to pitch into that bloated, festering dead horse known as the Broken Sword series, with a few pointed barbs at what I perceive to be the grossly misshapen head size of one child. Charles Cecil, or Cecil, I'm going to call him Cecil, uh, who's creative director and head honcho over at Revolution. Um, basically, I accused him of uh, usurping the good name of Beneath the Steel Sky to fuel his own megalomaniacal ends, and uh, funnily enough, he responded, going so far as to solicit my ideas for a Steel Sky sequel by asking me what I thought worked most effectively with the first game. And he actually listened to me, so um, hats off to Mr. Cecil for being a good sport and dealing level-headedly with an obsessed fan who was shouting obscenities at him through public social media. And uh, what I told him was basically that the first game succeeded so well in creating a dystopian atmosphere full of gallows humor like uh, you would see a firefighter or a, or a coroner exhibiting. Um, because you were uh, doing some unspeakable things and, and the plot was unfolding in an unspeakably horrific manner and uh, I urged him not to listen to the critics that said that the original was somehow at odds with itself by being simultaneously humorous and serious. I thought that was one of its greatest strengths uh, because uh, it had this overwhelming oppressive atmosphere but the sheer absurdity of the attitudes of the oppressed citizens of Union City and their blind obedience to this ever-growing menace beneath the city controlling every facet of their daily lives just made you chuckle. Anyway, this wasn't the first time I had been in contact with Sir Cecil. Uh, many, many years earlier, back in the mid to late 90s, I had just gotten on the internet and I was doing okay as the writer of the Space Quest FAQ, a comprehensive tome of knowledge about the Space Quest series that I've been told wound up being bigger than the shooting script for Star Trek Generations, and also contributing regularly to a number of Space Quest fan sites, most notably Jess Morissette's inimitable Virtual Broom Closet site. Uh, by this time, I was already hobnobbing with Sierra Online alumni and by hobnobbing, I mean barging in on their workflow by endlessly harassing their employees through the email system. Um, but I'd had the tremendous fortune of carrying on personal conversations with uh, everyone from Jane Jensen, Al Lowe, and Scott Murphy to uh, Ken Williams, Cindy Vanis, and executive whatchamacallit Craig Alexander. And uh, then I decided to branch out and see what other illustrious game companies I could annoy. And Revolution Software seemed right up there since I'd just been blindly infatuated with Beneath the Steel Sky since uh, playing the demo at age 14 and uh, then buying the game on CD-ROM a mere week after its uh, European release. So, on a whim, I wrote Mr. Charles fucking Cecil out of the blue, uh, asking if he would like to be my pen pal for the week, and if he knew how to get in touch with Dave Cummins, the guy who the manual stated actually wrote the game and designed most of it, not to mention composed the music for it, and... He did. He fucking did it. He put me in touch with Dave Cummins, even though, as I learned, uh, Dave had left Revolution a couple of months ago at this uh, stage, owing to severe clashes and professional differences between him and the rest of the Revolution staff. So, I emailed Dave Cummins, and uh, even more to my surprise, he responded. Um, 
Now, everything I'm about to say is, well, for all intents and purposes, hearsay, because my correspondences with uh, Dave happened way before we had anything like the cloud to store our emails on, and the emails between Dave and myself are unfortunately lost forever in the nexus of bad hard drive backups. I have no way of proving that these exchanges actually happened, and to top it off, I'm paraphrasing from what I can remember this dude writing me some 18 years ago. And I'm only saying this because I relate the story that I'm about to tell you uh, on a forum called RPGCodex.com some time ago, and I was met with, uh, shall we say, mild skepticism with regards to my credulity. So, uh, fuck it, believe it or not, this is what happened. I emailed Dave Cummins and told him that I was going to work on a Beneath the Steel Sky fansite, much like I'd, like I'd done with uh, launching a fansite about Space Quest entitled Wilco's Domain that featured, among other things, a pretty vast library of original interviews with people associated with the Space Quest series, including the two guys from Andromeda and uh, Ken Williams himself, and um, that I would like very much to interview him for what was, in my mind, going to be the greatest fucking Beneath the Steel Sky fansite ever. And, like I said, the dude actually replied to me. And not only did he reply to me, he fucking offered to share with me his thoughts on a planned sequel uh, Beneath the Steel Sky 2. And I said, hey, for the site, I was thinking of writing up a novelization-style document based on the first game. Uh, wouldn't it be awesome if you did the same thing for your proposed sequel? And not only did he say yes, as in he was going to write the fucking novel based on his ideas for Steel Sky 2, but he also gave me a couple of glimpses into what was supposed to have been the much larger, more expansive story of the original Beneath the Steel Sky. Um, I remember his last email to me said, I'm preparing to dive into the world of Beneath the Steel Sky again. Never thought that would happen. Meaning he was going to go off and do his story on Steel Sky 2 while I was writing the novel, quote-unquote, of uh, Steel Sky 1. And uh, he was also going to be supplying me with a bunch of inside stories about what it was like to develop Steel Sky with Revolution software. By his own admission, it had been fucking living hell, and uh, lead programmer Tony Warner uh, backed this statement up when I emailed him and asked him about the daily routine of programming on Beneath the Steel Sky, and he replied, contemplating mass suicide. But um, Dave never got around to it. Um, another thing we never got around to was providing the original soundtrack for the game for download on the site, uh, which Dave had written on his Apple computer using a sequencer. Um, the music you're probably used to hearing on the PC-DOS version of the game is actually a bastardized, meatified version that he didn't approve of, and that he felt butchered his original score. And uh, remember, this was back before the days of Google Drive and Dropbox and You Send It and all that shit, but as proof, uh, that something better did indeed exist out there, he uh, sent me uh, one track from his original soundtrack, the closing theme, which is one of the shortest pieces of the game, uh, because it came in just under the 1.5 megabytes of space that most email accounts would allow you to send as attachments at the time. And he promised to send me the complete original soundtrack on a CDR for me to put on the fan site I was building. This, of course, never materialized either. Um... And I don't know what to tell you. Shit happened. Stuff fell by the wayside. I got about three or four chapters into a Steel Sky novelization, which, to be honest, wasn't all that good. Um, without getting the full story behind the original plans for Steel Sky, beyond a, a few tidbits of information, such as uh, Dave conspiratorially musing that a character of his, a link space hacker by the name of Toxic Waste, was cut from the original game because Tony Warner took personal offense, believing it was a personal barb directed at him. Note the identical initials and 
and second letters. And uh, then my hard drive crashed. And uh, since all my emails were stored on the hard drive, my correspondence with Dave Cummins, as well as a good chunk of my Sierra alumni correspondence, my torment of Charles Cecil, and, and that one time where I actually got a single-phrase personal response from my literary hero, Douglas Adams, was all lost irrevocably in the digital sands of unforgiving time. So, you can choose to believe all the shit I've just said, or you can go ask Dave Cummins for yourself. Or, wait, you can't, actually, because the dudes vanished off the fucking face of the earth. That's right, no one has any fucking clue where Dave Cummins has got to this day and age, and as far as we know, um, well, he contributed some writing to Broken Sword, the game that immediately followed Beneath the Steel Sky, and a smidgen of stuff for Broken Sword 2, before he fell out with the rest of the lads from Revolution Soft in such a horrific manner that none of them have any idea what the fuck's happened to him. And uh, this brings me back to my current exploits of communicating abuse at Mr. Charles Cecil in the present day. Um... And uh, Charles is still CEO and creative director at uh, Revolution Software. And uh, after my barrage of incendiary accusations, we had this nice little email chat where we both uh, came to grips with our... Well, okay, I came to grips with my tendency to fly off the handle at inopportune moments. But hey, you gotta admit, that was a sly deal with the whole Steel Sky 2 thing to begin with. Anyway, our conversation quickly turned to the question of, so where the fuck is Dave gone to now? And that also brings me back to my post at rpgcodex.com, where, despite accusations against my integrity and making the whole fucking thing up, there were actually some kind souls who were intrigued by my story and who also wanted to find out just where the fuck Dave had wound up. And some of these turned out to be old colleagues and friends of Dave, including Jai Redman and Andre Rosso, who worked with Dave before he joined Revolution, as well as Charles Caesar himself, who promised to bury the hatchet and come out with open arms should Dave ever resurface. So... Now, I guess, there's an open manhunt to try and decipher just where in the world Dave Cummins is hiding out, and if he would ever regain the courage to uh, step forward and own up to having written, and mostly designed, one of the greatest graphic adventure games known to man. At least, in my mind, it is. Beneath the Steel Sky just fucking has it all, and to think that this man's original design was cut and butchered down to a meager shell of the grandiosity that he had originally envisioned and still be as utterly mesmerizing as it is, it's just a testament of what a really, really great idea this game has. And I hope I hope Dave Cummins comes out of the bushes one way or another, because if nothing else, the man deserves every bit of sycophantic praise that one can heap on a game designer for creating a world that's not only full of colorful characters and a setting that's both head-scratchingly weird and off-putting as it is engrossing and engaging, but also for its deep story of human obsolescence and what happens when we adopt blind, unquestioning adherence to authority. It's a piece of interactive entertainment that deserves reverence because it unflinchingly holds up a mirror to our own failings as a society and challenges our perceived security under a banner of free enterprise and allegedly all-knowing authority. And it does so with an irreverent, downtrodden sense of humor that's both depressing and liberating in its total embrace of cynicism and despondency. It is, to put it simply, one of the quintessential game experiences of the adventure game heydays, and it's a story that no self-respecting sci-fi fan or aficionado of cyberpunk stylism would dare to do without, in my opinion anyway. So, Dave, if you're out there, and listening to this for some reason, please get in touch with us. Um, now that we have the technology, I would love to see this comprehensive encyclopedia of all things Steel Sky finally come to fruition. In fact, I've registered the domain BeVigilant.net for just such a purpose, and if anyone else is interested in helping me get the show on the road, please feel free to contact me. Um, you can reach me on Twitter at TorbenFrost, that's T-O-R-B-E-N-F-R-O-S-T, or you can just go to my website at SpaceQuestHistorian.com and get in touch with me from there. 
And if you haven't already, go play some fucking Beneath the Steel Sky. I mean, the son of a bitch is free, and it truly is an experience like no other. Don't do yourself any disservice. Be fucking vigilant. All right, thanks so much for that. Awesome info, great story. Uh, wow. That was, yeah, we talked a little bit about that stuff on Twitter, but kind of to hear it all all condensed down, it's uh, definitely really cool. Thank you again. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. So, does Beneath the Steel Sky hold up today? Well, hell yes. I am frankly angry with myself. I can't believe I haven't experienced this game until right now. I had heard about it forever. I knew it was free. I just never freaking played it. The art style, the story, the dialogue, they're all amazing. If you haven't played this game and you enjoy sci-fi, cyberpunk, or just a very engaging story, you are doing yourself a disservice by not playing Beneath a Steel Sky. The game isn't overly challenging, and at times the controls can get a little squirrely, but this game simply must be experienced. I could go on, but I'll just be repeating myself. Try this game. It's free. You have nothing to lose. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's it. Thanks to everyone for all the amazing contributions this time around. I'm super happy with all of them. I love different voices on the show. Thank you especially to Trolls for, for, for that longer segment. Really enjoyed it. Uh, so next time, we're going to hit another platformer, which we haven't done very many of. So we're going to look at 1991's Another World, also known as Out of This World. It's another list of shame game that I oddly have read a lot about and know a lot about, but have never actually played. So I'm looking forward to chatting about it. If you're looking forward to hearing me chat about it, or you got some stuff to say about this week's show or any previous show that you want to talk about, send me email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks as always to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com for all kinds of really great stuff. He's a really busy guy, but uh, if you need anything, look him up. He does great stuff. You can check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the show on Steam, though we don't do a whole bunch of stuff there at steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast and on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put a complete playthrough in three parts of Beneath the Steel Sky. I'm playing uh, Broken Age from Tim Schafer right now and uh, a couple of other cool things, having tons of fun over there. So go and check it out, youtube.com slash umbcast. Finally, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews over there. I love five-star reviews, so give them to me. So that's that, and I will see you next time for another world here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. No, I'm just kidding. I'll play the real one. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.